Japan became a great power in 1905. That year, the army conquered Manchuria and the navy destroyed a Russian fleet at Sushumiya. For decades after, the Japanese navy was obsessed reliving this past glory on a strategic scale. The Japanese believed that naval wars were decided by a decisive battle. This was part of the thinking behind Pearl Harbor, where Japan sought to win a major victory from the outset. The Battle of Midway was based on the same thinking. After the death of Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto on April 18, 1943, command of the combined fleet went to Admiral Miniichi Koga. He wanted to fight a decisive battle in early 1944 after the Navy had time to rebuild in the wake of heavy losses in the Solomon Islands. The plan was called the Z-Plan. Even though Japan managed to churn out several aircraft carriers, the Americans, though, were rapidly expanding. Starting in December 1943, they began the Central Pacific Offensive, seizing the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. In early 1944, land-based air raids, particularly at Truk, ravaged Japan's outer defensive network. Throughout these battles, the main Japanese fleet stayed away. The next American goal was the Marianas Islands, in particular Guam, Tinian, and Saipan. Their capture would rupture Japan's inner defensive ring and give the Americans bases to start the long-range bombardment of Japan. This invasion would be covered by the mass carriers of Task Force 58. In March 1944, Koga was killed when his aircraft flew into a typhoon and crashed. Admiral Soyumu Toyota replaced him. Toyota had little combat experience, but he was very intelligent and was given command due to his seniority. He had nearly been named fleet commander in 1939, though he strongly opposed war with America. He also bickered with the army, leading to his removal from the Supreme War Council. Toyota was a staff officer by experience and training. He was wedded winning a decisive battle. Like many staff officers, his plans usually called for several fleets operating at once, the intention being that this would confuse the enemy over objectives. The result was complicated plans carried out by multiple fleets that could not support each other in the crucible of battle. This later point undermined Japanese naval plans because they often featured a decisive engagement as the end result of operations, but failed to take into account the piecemeal battles that often arose. Toyota's plans usually looked good on paper, but did not work in practice. Toyota embraced Koga's Z plan with few changes. It called for the Japanese Navy to concentrate wherever the American main attack fell. The Marianas seemed obvious as the target, but other possibilities included Biak and Palau. The Japanese had a number of advantages they hoped would turn the battle in their favor. Though outnumbered in ships and aircraft, they planned to use land-based aircraft in droves. The Japanese hoped to launch carrier aircraft at distance, have their aircraft attack, and then land on island airfields. They could then shuttle back and attack again on the return flight to the carriers. To make sure the fleet was ready in 1944, extensive war games were held to test the variations in the plan. Emperor Hirohito attended one of these games. Before the battle, the Americans made an intelligence breakthrough. The storm that killed Koga also led to an airplane crashing in the Philippines. Members of Koga's staff were captured by guerrillas along with the Japanese plans. The Americans knew the overall strategy that would be pursued and could react accordingly. However, Plan Z relied on several fleets making flank attacks. The fear of the Japanese Navy making an attack from an unexpected direction and wrecking the invasion fleet created an air of caution in the American High Command. When the invasion of Biak began on May 27th, Toyota thought it was the main attack and put the fleet in motion, while precious land-based aircraft was sent to Biak. Vice Admiral Jisiburo Ozawa, the carrier commander, refused to commit his fleet. It was a huge mistake. The Japanese could have achieved local superiority at Biak and caused heavy losses. 
They instead decided to wait for the main blow and fight Task Force 58, the most powerful naval force in the world. There was another troubling sign at Biak. The Japanese aircraft that were committed failed to even score a hit on American ships. Japanese pilots were simply not well trained enough to score consistent victories. In the end, Toyota's decision to fight a decisive naval battle against the most powerful fleet in the world with an air force that was in terminal decline all but dooms the Japanese to defeat. The American fleet's overall commander was Admiral Raymond A. Spruance. Born July 3, 1886, he was a veteran sailor, commanding warships of various classes before World War II. Shortly before Pearl Harbor, he was transferred to the Pacific and led cruisers that were escorting aircraft carriers. He formed an unlikely friendship with Vice Admiral William Halsey. They were a study in contrasts. Halsey was aggressive, passionate, and blunt. Spruance was calm and cautious, earning the nickname the Electric Brain for his ability to stay non-pulsed and possibly as a nod to his early training and fascination with electronics. Spruance was exacting in his staff work and able to get along with difficult men. He was not charming, but he was unpretentious and projected an air of calm and confidence. He was not completely cold and detached, though. In 1945, while aboard the battleship New Mexico, he manned a fire hose after a kamikaze attack. On the eve of the Battle of Midway, Halsey was sick with a case of the shingles. He recommended Spruance for the command, despite his inexperience with carrier tactics. Spruance relied heavily on Halsey's staff. His carrier force was victorious. Midway was a major victory, and Spruance's reputation was greatly enhanced. He served on Admiral Chester Nimitz's staff, and together they planned Pacific operations before Spruance took command of the Central Pacific Offensive. Command of Task Force 58 was held by Vice Admiral Mark Pete Mitcher. He was born January 26, 1887 in Wisconsin, where he got his lifelong passion for fishing. His time at the Naval Academy, however, was difficult. He amassed 159 demerits, and due to poor grades, he was forced out his sophomore year. He re-entered and graduated, but was not given major assignments. His rise was due to an early interest in naval aviation, and tried to complete the first transatlantic aircraft crossing in 1919. Before World War II, he advanced naval aviation both in the bureaucratic battles in Washington and in command of flight groups, being the first to land on the carrier Saratoga. He was an expert trainer of men. When World War II began, Mitcher was in command of the Hornet, a modern aircraft carrier. He fought at Midway, but his carrier underperformed. For the Guadalcanal campaign, he led land-based aircraft, with Halsey remarking, I knew we'd probably catch hell from the Japs in the air. That's why I sent Pete Mitcher up there. Pete was a fighting fool, and I knew it. Mitcher next commanded larger carrier groups during the Central Pacific Offensive. As a tactician, he emphasized destructive firepower and massed attacks. He cared about his men and part of his belief in overwhelming firepower was because he thought it would reduce losses. Like Spruance, he was quiet and unpretentious, although he could be severe. He was a perfect subordinate in that he was willing to give advice, but once given a definitive order, he carried it out without protest. It was an important quality, since Spruance and Mitcher had a tense relationship since Midway. Mitcher had under him several experienced carrier commanders, many of which were naval aviators before the war. Two standouts were Rear Admirals Joseph Clark and Alfred Montgomery. Clark was particularly aggressive, and had also commanded a carrier in the Battle of the Atlantic. Clark could be blunt, and he once told a superior, You've got the widest yellow streak up your back of any admiral I've ever seen in my life. He was domineering, unforgiving, humorless, and suffered from painful ulcers. However, he was liked by the aviators because he was a pilot and cared about his men. Mitchell favored Clark's promotion despite his taciturn ways.
Montgomery also took part in operations in the Atlantic. He was a renowned trainer and planner, but he was petulant and ambitious. He suffered from headaches and was despised by Spruance. Nevertheless, he was considered to be an aggressive and energetic officer. The two other carrier commanders under Mitchell were Rear Admirals William Harrell and John Walter Reeves. Harrell had previously skippered the carrier Ranger. Harrell was unaggressive and disliked by Clark. He became ill on June 28th and was eased out of command. Reeves was named Blackjack and was an older officer. He was considered to be calm, capable, and an exacting disciplinarian. In September, he moved out of carrier command due to his advanced age. The Americans were opposed by Vice Admiral Jisiburu Ozawa. Born October 2, 1886 on Kyushu, Ozawa rose through the ranks very slowly. He served on various ships, mostly destroyers, before serving as a staff officer from 1925 to 1933. He served as a chief of staff of the Combined Fleet and later as the head of the Naval Academy. Ozawa was popular in the Japanese Navy because he too cared about his men. He was tall, 6 feet and 7 inches, and considered one of the ugliest admirals, getting the nickname the Gargoyle. He was a consummate professional, known for good staff work. He was also a pioneer in carrier operations, recommending the creation of carrier task force for training purposes. Like most senior admirals, he opposed going to war with America. He was favored by Isoroku Yamamoto for command of the Pearl Harbor Strike Force, but to appease other factions, the job went to Vice Admiral Chiuchi Nagumo. Ozawa instead led the invasion of the Dutch East Indies. In October 1942, Ozawa replaced Nagumo, but the carriers were held back and Ozawa did not fight in a carrier battle until the Marianas. In the battle, he showed an uncanny ability to predict the movements and strategies of his enemy. Ozawa's number two carrier commander was Rear Admiral Tagatsuko Jojima. He had served on carriers since 1931. He commanded the Shokaku from Pearl Harbor to Coral Sea. It was said about him that he could navigate a warship even on dry land, and Shokaku's deft maneuvers at Coral Sea prevented its destruction. During the Solomons campaign, he was assigned to command seaplane tenders and destroyers. He suspected Japan's naval codes had been compromised and tried to convince Yamamoto to not leave on his inspection tour, stating, What a damn fool thing to do, to send such a long and detailed message about the activities of the sea and sea so near the front. This kind of thing must stop. Yamamoto ignored the warning and was killed. When Koga took command, he placed Jojima as Ozawa's second in command. Like Ozawa, he was considered one of the ugliest admirals in the service. Jojima commanded land-based aircraft after the Philippine Sea. Part of Ozawa's carrier force and most of his heavy surface forces were led by Vice Admiral Takio Kurita. He was considered a good surface tactician, most noted for the successful October 13, 1942 bombardment of Henderson Field on Guadalcanal. He was a private man, modest, devoutly religious, and unimaginative. He was close to Ozawa and was increasingly depressed by the death and destruction of the war. Vice Admiral Kakuchi Kakuta was another important commander. Kakuta commanded carrier forces throughout the war, in particular in the Philippines invasion and at the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands. He was considered to be aggressive, and in mid-1943 was given command of all Japanese land-based naval aviation in the Central Pacific. He was a large man, both tall and fat, but also a drunk. He advocated sending pilots with less training to the carriers, hoping they would learn on the job. Although Kakuta did well in the 1942 battles, he seemed to have lost his edge by 1944. Task Force 58 was made up of five task groups. 
In total, the Americans had seven big carriers, eight light carriers, seven fast battleships, 21 cruisers, and 68 destroyers. Mitscher's total carrier air force was 956 planes. The Americans had three carrier classes. Most were independence-class carriers. They carried 31 planes and were fast but not well protected. In general, the war proved the limitation of light carriers, and the class was retired during the Cold War. Most aircraft was on board the Essex-class carriers. They were large, with lots of anti-aircraft guns and able to hold 90 to 100 planes. They were not well armored, though. The overall success of the design meant that they were in use as late as the 1970s. Lastly, there was the Enterprise, last survivor of the Yorktown class. The Enterprise was America's most decorated warship. The carrier was a good design, and the Essex class was itself mostly an improvement over the Yorktown class. American anti-aircraft guns were numerous and deadly. Damage control was taught to all sailors, and as such, American ships often survived damage that would sink ships in other navies. Americans were also good learners, and they improved damage control techniques after the loss of carriers Lexington and Wasp in 1942. American pilots underwent some of the most extensive training of the war. Most had about two years' worth of stateside training with 350 flight hours. Their teachers were often veteran pilots. Most air groups had trained together and by June 1944 had months of combat experience. Morale was high and operational planning was very efficient. Indeed, the U.S. revised fleet operations, with parallel developments in both the Combat Information Center and in doctrine, training, and practices to get the most out of the new communications and sensor technologies. In terms of fighter aircraft, the F-6F Hellcat had replaced the venerable Wildcat. The Hellcat was rugged and could carry a respectable complement of bombs. It outclassed absolutely anything the Japanese had and is still widely considered the best carrier fighter of the entire war. For bombing, the Americans used three kinds of airplanes. The TBF Avenger was still in use as both a bomber and a torpedo plane. It was rugged and adaptable, remaining in use until the 1960s. Future President of the United States George H.W. Bush flew an Avenger in the battle aboard the carrier San Jacinto. Dive bombers came in two varieties. One was the SBD Dauntless, the best plane of its type. It was tough and carried a heavy bomb load. The plane's greatest moment was Midway, where Dauntlesses sank four Japanese carriers. The Dauntless, however, was being replaced with the SB-2C Helldiver. Although it carried a heavy bomb load, it was hard to handle and was nicknamed the Beast and the Son of a Bitch Second Class. It was supposed to be an army bomber, but it was found to be unneeded. Britain and Australia actually canceled orders and the project was sent to the Navy. The Dauntless had better range, and after the battle, some voice that the Helldiver should be retired but the Dauntless line had already been ended. After modifications, though, the Helldiver turned out to be a solid plane, but at the Philippine Sea, it was still the Navy's problem child. By contrast, the Japanese had three big carriers, two medium carriers, and four light carriers. Escorts were five battleships, 13 cruisers, and 27 destroyers. The carrier air force numbered 473, but there were around 500 land-based aircraft on hand but they would need to concentrate in order to be at all effective. Japan's main three carriers were the sisters Shokaku and the Zuikaku. Arguably the best carriers outside of the Essex class, they were large, fast, and robust. The new Taiho was an armored carrier, and Ozawa made it his flagship. Although it carried only 60 planes, much was expected from the Japan's newest carrier. 
The twins Junyo and Hio were neither large nor light carriers, each holding about 50 planes. They were slower than all the other carriers and suffer from electrical troubles. Japan's four light carriers were the Zuiho, Chiyoda, Chitos, and Ryuho. None of them could make more than about 28 knots. They were serviceable but inferior to Independence-class carriers. Tellingly, all Japanese carriers save the big three were converted from previous ships. It was the only way Japan could field a carrier force even partially able of contesting the Americans. Japan's main fighter was the A6M50, or also known as the Zeke. It had a reduced range from earlier types, but was tougher. However, although great against Wildcats and Corsairs, it was not up to the standards of the Hellcat. Most Japanese torpedo planes were the B6N Tenzin, or also known as the Jill. It was a good torpedo plane with a wide range. However, production had been delayed, and B5N Kate bombers were still being used, although in very small numbers. The Kate did well in 1941-1942, but by 1943 it was considered slow, and it had a more limited range than the Jill. The Kate was mostly used by Ozawa as scouts. Japanese dive bombers were also a mix of new and old. The D-4Y Suisei, or also known as the Judy, was incredibly fast and had an impressive range, but it was not as robust and in combat was easily destroyed. However, it proved to be a great recon plane, and its speed was an asset when it was used as a kamikaze. However, it too had been delayed, and the D-3A Val was still in use. The Val was maneuverable and handled well, but carried a smaller bomb load and was not as robust. In 1942, it was the scourge of the Allies. By 1944, it was outclassed. Japanese pilot training was poor. The carriers had only months to train, and due to American submarine exercises at sea, were limited. The air crews on board Ozawa's fleet carriers were the best, and the air crews of the Junyo, the Hio, and the Ryuho were the worst, with only 100 flight hours. In late 1943, training was so poor that Koga decided not to contest the invasion of the Gilbert Islands. By June 1944, the carrier groups were considered to be ready for battle. In one regard, though, the Japanese were superior. They had a better reconnaissance doctrine and overall training. As a result, Ozawa usually had more knowledge about American positions. Anti-aircraft guns in the Japanese Navy were more numerous and heavier, but aiming was inferior. The hope was that volume of fire would make up for deficiencies in technology. As events would show, though, the unsung heroes of the battle were the anti-air gunners. When confronted by a massed American airstrike, they held their own. However, Japanese ships were expected to escape destruction through fancy maneuvers. Fortunately, the Japanese were well-trained in these tactics. Lastly, both sides deployed many submarines. The Japanese had 24 in the area, and the Americans had 25. The war started with Japanese submarines scoring some major wins, while American submarines were hampered by bad torpedoes and bad strategy. By 1944, it had reversed. American crews were tough and aggressive, and in the final act of the Pacific War were decisive in Japan's defeat. They were also aided by Japan's poor anti-submarine techniques. By contrast, the Japanese submarines were taking appalling losses, and their skippers began to avoid battle altogether. Tellingly, on the night of June 20th, the American fleet presented the Japanese submariners with their last chance for glory, but none were nearby to take advantage of it. On June 11th, Task Force 58 appeared in the Marianas, surprising Toyota. On June 13th, Toyota canceled Operation KON, the relief of BIAC, and put Operation A-GO in place. Although surprised, the Japanese fleet was fast to react. 
Ozawa planned to have Kakuta attack with his land-based aircraft while he attacked the Americans with his long-range aircraft. However, American raids on the Marianas airfields, as well as at Iwo Jima and Chichijima, destroyed Kakuta's force. From June 12th to the 18th, the Americans destroyed hundreds of aircraft. However, Kakuta insisted he was doing damage to Spruance's aircraft. Kakuta's information to Ozawa was consistently inaccurate, and he was either outright lying or grossly misinformed by his pilots. Ozawa's path to the battle began ominously. On June 13th, a Judy crashed on the Teho while trying to land. The crash and resulting fire led to the loss of six aircraft. The destroyer Shiratsuyu collided with a tanker and sank. On June 15th, submarine Flying Fish sighted the Japanese fleet near Seymour near Leyte Gulf. The Americans knew the Japanese were on the way. On June 18th, Mitscher's own scouts managed to destroy several enemy scout aircraft, but failed to find Ozawa. Ozawa, meanwhile, did get a rough fix on Mitscher's position. That night, Ozawa split his forces, moving south with his carriers, while Kurita, with three light carriers, went east. Kurita's second-in-command, Rear Admiral Obayashi Suyo, planned to make an evening strike without Ozawa's permission, until Ozawa confirmed his attention to attack on June 19th. Suyo then halted his premature strike. Ozawa then broke radio silence to order Kakuta to attack with his aircraft. Ozawa thought Kakuta had 500 planes. Instead, he only had 50. Spruance was worried about Ozawa's aircraft attacking the Saipan landings. His last confirmed report of Ozawa's fleet was from June 17th, made by the submarine Kavala. Mitscher wanted to move west towards Ozawa and launch air attacks and fight a surface battle. Spruance, though, was worried. Task Force 58 was not fully concentrated, and he feared fighting Ozawa with only part of his fleet. Spruance chose not to close the distance with Ozawa, but instead stayed to protect the landings. Late on June 18th, Mitscher tried again to convince Spruance to attack, but with no success. On the morning of June 19th, one of Kakuta's aircraft spotted Task Force 58. Kakuta then launched a series of raids which were intercepted by Hellcats. In the ensuing battle, the Japanese lost 35 aircraft. Americans lost just one plane. Ozawa's pilots would be on their own. Ozawa launched two waves of aircraft, one of 69 aircraft from Kurita's light carriers and a second of 128 planes from the Taiho, Shokaku, and the Zuikaku. Two other strikes were also launched with 47 and 82 aircraft in each raiding group. American radar detected Ozawa's attack some 150 miles out. Mitscher ordered all fighter aircraft aloft while the bombers orbited the open waters to the east. Mitscher figured a carrier filled with bombers was more likely to burn up if attacked. As the Japanese approached, there were over 200 Hellcats in the air, and they were ready for a fight. The Japanese were roughly 70 miles from the American fleet, but they had become disorganized during their long flight. Just as the first wave regrouped and attacked the Hellcats, the first wave was decimated, losing 41 aircraft. The remaining 27 managed to attack Mitscher's pickets, landing a bomb on the battleship South Dakota. The second Japanese wave was also roughly handled, with the Hellcats claiming 70 aircraft. Those that got through were ripped apart by anti-aircraft fire. They nearly hit three carriers, but failed to do any major damage. Out of 128 planes, 97 were lost, including many of the only veteran airmen left in the carrier fleet. The third wave of 47 aircraft had become lost, and only a few of its planes attacked. As such, only seven of them were lost. It was also made up of the least experienced pilots. The fourth wave went to the wrong area and split up. 
Some aircraft from Zui Kaku attacked Montgomery's carriers but scored no hits. Six were shot down by anti-aircraft gunners. The rest fled for Guam and Rota to rearm and refuel. The air battles were a massacre, with several American pilots claiming multiple kills and a few becoming aces in a single day. W. Webb actually flew with a formation of VALs before opening fire and claiming six kills. In 13 hours of combat, 315 Japanese aircraft were downed by 206 pilots, with six men becoming aces in a single day. Two of them had never even shot down a plane before. Ziggy Neef of the Lexington called it an old-time turkey shoot, and the name stuck. In time, the entire battle became popularly known as the Marianas Turkey Shoot. American tactics and training, combined with the use of radar, planning, and superior aircraft, made sure the battle was won before it was lost. The Japanese, with some luck, might have damaged or even sunk a carrier or two, since they did penetrate the fighters and made several near hits. Yet the horrendous losses in aircraft made sure that any victory would be Pyrrhic. Only the South Dakota was hit, and the ship was able to carry on without major problems. The Japanese who returned to Ozawa found that the battle was going even worse for them back in the fleet. In the largest carrier battle of World War II, the decisive weapon proved to be the submarine. Vice Admiral Charles Lockwood, commander of the American submarines, ordered four submarines to join Kavala in monitoring the Japanese and attacking them if able. Two submarines, Albacore and Kavala, managed to do just that. The Albacore came close to Taiho and moved to attack. The fire control computer malfunctioned and the torpedoes had to be fired by eye, with a spread of six going out. Four went off target, but two were set on a course to hit. Japanese pilot Sakio Komatsu, piloting a Judy, saw a torpedo as he took off. He rammed his Judy into the torpedo, blowing up himself and the torpedo. The other one found its mark, though, rupturing two aviation fuel tanks. The Albacore survived a death charge attack and fled the scene. Taiho appeared fine, able to make 26 knots and still launch aircraft. However, vapors from the fuel began to accumulate. The ventilation system was operating at full blast, spreading the vapors throughout the Taiho. In addition, in 1944, the Japanese had been forced to use less refined and more volatile oil. The Taiho was a ticking time bomb. Kavala, after its June 17th sighting, had lost Ozawa. The submarine, skippered by the resolute commander H.J. Kostler, kept at it and penetrated Ozawa's screen. At 11.22 a.m., Kavala hit the Shokaku with three torpedoes. One torpedo ruptured the fuel tanks, and the aircraft being refueled blew up. Burning fuel spewed out all over the hangar. Damage control fought the fire, and there was hope, since emergency lighting still functioned and counter-flooding prevented Shokaku from capsizing. However, the ship started settling forward, and the fires were getting worse. At 12.10 p.m., there was an explosion, and soon the aircraft elevators became fiery pits. Shokaku's returning aircraft were ordered to Taiho and Zuikaku. Captain Hiroshi Matsubara ordered the men on deck. The flag was lowered, and the order was given to abandon ship. Meanwhile, Matsubara tried to go down with the Shokaku, tying himself to the ship. However, the bow dipped underwater, and then water poured into the number one elevator well, causing the carrier to quickly sink. Men tumbled down the flight deck into the sea, or worse, into the blazing pit that was number three elevator. The Shokaku was now hell on the high seas. The final plunge lasted all of two minutes, the ship sinking with a groaning roar. The men bobbing in the sea sang the Shokaku's fight song, 
with what one man described as blood tears. Under the sea, the ship exploded. The time was around 2 p.m. 1,263 men died on the Shokaku. There were 570 survivors, including Matsubara. He was washed off the deck and refused to be rescued until all of his men were safe. He is the last person saved from the Shokaku. As for the survivors, Ozawa went out of his way to make sure they were not placed on the sister ship, Zuikaku so as not to make the men feel like they were on a ghost ship. There was no revenge for Shokaku. The destroyer Urakazi, which failed to detect Kavala, attacked and dropped 106 depth charges, but Kavala escaped. Earlier, Urakazi had escorted the escort carrier Chunyo when it was sunk. Months later, while guarding the battleship Congo off of Formosa, the Congo was hit by a submarine, but so was the Urakazi. The hit touched off an explosion, but the seas were so rough and the explosion was so sudden that the Urakazi's loss was not at first noticed. Urakazi was lost with all of its hands. Congo sank hours later due to poor damage control. While Shokaku sank, aircraft continued to land on Taiho, but the vapors were getting worse. At 2.32 p.m. there was an explosion that blew out the sides of the hangars. The power failed and the hull was punctured below the waterline. Taiho was dead in the water and ablaze by 3 p.m. The damage control teams kept the fire contained while Ozawa transferred his flag to the cruiser Haguro. Taiho started to settle, oil spilling out and setting the ocean ablaze. Taiho sank at an even keel, and Vice Admiral Matomi Ugaki said it was nearly horizontal when it took the final plunge. Japan's largest and most modern carrier went beneath the waves at 4.28 p.m., the ship was in action for only four months. Nearly 1,000 men were fished out of the water, with some 660 men dying in the sinking, including nearly all of the engine room personnel. The loss of two of Japan's three biggest carriers within hours compounded the loss of aircraft. The battle had gone from defeat to complete disaster. For the American submarine force, it remains their finest hour. That night, Ozawa found out his carrier aircraft had taken severe losses. 243 of the 373 planes launched had been lost. Total losses from Guam brought the tally to 315. Total American aircraft losses were just 21. However, Japanese pilots reported they had sunk four carriers and downed 160 aircraft. Japanese reporting during the war was often poor. In part, it was because of the fear of failure. Japan's shame-based culture meant defeats were often downplayed and success was often inflated. Ozawa believed his pilots and felt that he had done major damage. Kakuta also stated that the Americans had taken heavy losses. 
Although Ozawa had only around 100 planes left, he decided to stay in the battle, against Kurita's belief that they should withdraw. Ozawa correctly figured that the Americans were unaware of his exact position, and he thought he could make another attack. Ozawa even launched 10 aircraft on a night attack, but they failed to find the Americans. Ozawa's aggressiveness in the face of such crippling losses was the biggest mistake he made during the battle. Spruance did not attack on June 19th in order to keep the aircraft nearby to guard the landings, and in case there was another massed attack from the Japanese. On June 20th, American aircraft went searching for Ozawa's carriers. Early morning scouts found nothing. Not until 3.12 p.m. was a sighting reported. The Japanese fleet was 275 miles out at the limit of Mitscher's strike range. Daylight was slipping away. Regardless, Mitscher decided to launch an all-out strike. After the first attack group launched, a message indicated that Japanese fleet was 60 miles farther out than it previously indicated. The first launch would be at the limit and would have to attempt landing at night. Mitscher canceled the second wave but allowed the first to proceed. The strike was later known as the Mission Beyond Darkness. While Ozawa's ships were refueling, the cruiser Otago intercepted an American transmission. Ozawa had been found. He now steamed away from battle. He could put up 68 aircraft to guard the fleet, including bombers. Many were among Ozawa's best pilots, yet it would hardly be enough. The Americans struck with 226 planes, including 95 Hellcats, 51 Helldivers, 26 Dauntlesses, and 54 Avengers, mostly carrying bombs. The first victims of the attack were oilers, with two being so damaged they were later scuttled. These were attacked by aircraft from the Wasp, which were running particularly low on fuel. The rest attacked the fighting fleet. American losses for the day were 20 aircraft, eight of them being Helldivers. Right before the attack on the main fleet, the Hio launched aircraft and was therefore a bit out of formation. The isolated carrier came under a full attack. One bomb killed most of the bridge personnel. Another exploded in the hangar. Just then, six Avengers from the Bellow Wood closed in with torpedoes. Two were shot down and three missed. One Avenger caught fire and the crew parachuted out, but pilot George Brown remained. He launched a torpedo that hit the starboard engine room. According to the Japanese, the Avenger shot past the bridge and dove into the sea on fire. According to the Americans, Brown's Avenger survived for a time, Brown waved to his comrades with a bloody arm. He gradually lost control and acted in the words of Warren Omark, like a football player who had been hit in the head. Brown disappeared and was never seen again. To this day, it is debated whether Brown or Omark actually hit the Hio. While Hio was attacked, the other carriers came under fire. Junyo, sister ship of Hio, was struck with one bomb and several near misses. Although forced to stop flight operations, Junyo went to the aid of Hio, which was soon dead in the water. Elsewhere, Chiyoda was struck with one bomb, but damage control managed to put out the fire. Nearby, Chiyoda was being guarded by steady anti-aircraft fire from the battleship Haruna. One bomb skipped out of the water and hit the stern. The manual steering compartment was flooded, reducing speed. Another bomb hit the bow, and there were several near misses. The nearby cruiser Maya suffered minor damage and flooding, but was otherwise fine. The Ryuho came under fire and dodged four bombs. Earlier in the day, Ozawa had transferred his flag to Zuikaku. The carrier was now the last survivor of the six carriers that attacked Pearl Harbor. Unlike Shokaku, it was considered a lucky ship that had so far suffered only light damage. 
June 20th, though, would be the ultimate test. American aircraft swarmed the carrier Zuikaku. It took evasive action, and her AA gunners fired furiously. In addition, with night falling, the Americans had trouble making out targets. In the attack, one light bomb penetrated the hangar and started a fire. However, there were six near misses. An explosion caused the water main to break, flooding the radio room, boiler rooms, and secondary battery room. In the confusion, the order to abandon ship was given, but soon after it was rescinded. The damage control teams managed to put out the fires. Considering the size and scale of the attack, Mischer's evening assault was disappointing. Only Hio had suffered major damage. Although some 65 Japanese aircraft were lost on June 20th, the warships mostly escaped with minor damage. The Americans lacked experience in this kind of fighting. They had much more experience bombing bases and winning dogfights. Japanese skippers were well-trained in using maneuvers to dodge attacks, and American crews were not very experienced in attacking warships in the open. After the Americans left, the battleship Nagato was sent to tow the Hio. Just before sunset, there was a massive explosion on Hio. Fires compromised the ship's already shaky electronics, and leaking gas caused the stern to go ablaze. The ship was abandoned in an orderly fashion. At 7.32, roughly one hour after the explosion, Hio sank stern first, her bow pointing upward almost vertical. An injured Captain Toshiyuki Yokoi tried to go down with the ship but was swept off and rescued. 247 men died on Hio, while 1,331 were saved. Compared to most other Japanese carrier losses in the war, the men of the Hio were lucky. While Ozawa's ships fled, Mitscher's airmen were moving in the dark back to their carriers, fuel tanks running empty. Mitscher, at the recommendation of Captain Arlie Burke, turned on every light in the fleet to help guide the pilots. One pilot actually called it Coney Island on the 4th of July. However, with all lights running, Japanese submarines would have a good way to spot an attack, and many pilots confused the lights on the carriers for the lights of the escorts. In the end, the Americans had little to fear. Japanese submarines failed to score any victories. In fact, 17 were lost in the Marianas campaign. In the darkness, some 70 planes crashed into the sea, sometimes right among the fleet. Throughout June 21st, the destroyers worked tirelessly to rescue downed crewmen. Of the 172 men bobbing in the ocean, only 34 of them were never found. Toyota ordered Ozawa to withdraw towards Okinawa. Ozawa offered his resignation, but it was turned down. In total, Ozawa had lost three carriers and 433 aircraft. He had only 35 with him on June 21st. Kakuta lost 50 during the actual carrier battle. By contrast, American losses were 130 planes. 109 American personnel also died. The Japanese lost around 3,000 sailors and airmen. The Japanese had not fought the Americans in a major naval battle since 1942. Before the battle, hopes were low, but after the Philippine Sea, victory seemed now impossible. The extent of American numbers and dominance in training and technology cast a gloom over the Japanese. The war now seemed unwinnable to all but the absolute diehards. The defeat led to the fall of Hideki Tojo's government. While Tojo lost his grip on power, Kakuta lost his life. He tried to escape Tinian after the island was invaded. His rubber raft failed to reach a submarine, and he committed seppuku. His body was never found, and is soon to be buried in secret by his staff. 
The battle absolutely assured the fall of the Marianas Islands after months of fighting at Saipan, Guam, and Tinian. From these islands, B-29 bombers could now start to level mainland Japan. This air campaign culminated in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For Japan's carrier force, Philippine Sea was the last battle where they were seen as the decisive arm. At the Battle of the Leyte Gulf, Ozawa led a carrier group as decoys, and he lost all four carriers. Kurita, with a force of battleships, acted as the main strike force. However, Leyte Gulf, the largest naval battle in history, ended the Japanese Navy as an effective fighting force that American planners had to consider. Kurita was removed for failing to press an attack at Leyte Gulf. Ozawa was praised, and he later replaced Toyota in command of the fleet in the final months of the war. Of the Japanese ships damaged the Philippine Sea, Zuikaku, Chiyoda, and Maya all sank at Leyte Gulf. Haruna was destroyed in a 1945 air raid in Japan. Only Junyo survived the war, but it was scrapped. After Lady Gulf, Japan's carriers acted more as ferries for land-based aircraft and took heavy losses from submarines. After the loss of the carriers Shinyo, Shinano, and Unryu, and the near loss of Junyo, Toyota at last bowed to reality. His fleet was effectively blockaded by submarines. By then, almost all ships were being used as mobile anti-aircraft and gun platforms. Among the American admirals, there was tension over how the battle was handled. Spruance's caution was attacked. Montgomery wrote, Results of the battle were extremely disappointing to all hands, and that important units of the enemy fleet, which came out in the open for the first time in over a year and made several air attacks on our superior force, were able to escape without our coming to grips with them. By contrast, Admiral Ernest J. King, head of the Navy, told Spruance, You did a damn fine job back there. No matter what other people tell you, your decision was correct. It was high praise from King, who was not one to hide his displeasure. The sharpest rebuke to Spruance's leadership came from Nimitz. After the Philippine Sea, Nimitz ordered that if the Japanese fleet came out to fight, it should be destroyed, something Halsey tried to do. The result was a near disaster as Halsey left the transport fleet vulnerable. The irony of the two battles is that at the Philippine Sea, Halsey's aggression would have paid off, while at Leyte Gulf, Spruance's prudence would have worked better. Spruance was still respected and given major assignments. He oversaw the landings at Iwo Jima and Okinawa. After the war, he was head of the Naval War College and resigned in 1948. Mitscher led carriers until the end of the war, and was widely seen as second to none as a tactician. In 1946, he was made commander of the Atlantic Fleet, but died soon after. Clark led Task Force 77 in the Korean War. Montgomery led carriers at Lady Gulf, but in 1945 was sent to train pilots on the West Coast. He held several important fleet commands right after the war, but ended his career in 1951, commanding land-based aircraft. Spruance, Mitscher, and Clark each had ships named after them in the Cold War Navy. As of 2018, the Battle of the Philippine Sea remains the largest carrier battle ever fought. It was a highly studied battle after the war, and the tactics used by the Americans are still the basis of overall American carrier tactics and doctrine today. However, it was a battle already lost by Japan. The question was how heavy would the losses be? The loss of trained pilots and carriers rendered that force impotent, but enough ships escaped to take part at Lady Gulf. The Battle of the Philippine Sea could have been decisive, and Mitscher and Montgomery knew it. Ultimately, American training, tactics, and technology secured a victory. 
Spruance's leadership made sure the victory was not total. But nor did it need to be, for the real prize was not destroying a carrier force doomed to defeat, but rather an island chain that placed Japan in range of heavy bombers. Ultimate defeat in the Marianas meant that Japan's defeat would be a disaster on a scale that the people of the rising sun had never dreamed of, a scale that has forever scarred their psyche in history. After the war, Japan again built a modern fleet, but one they did not deploy for offensive action until 2001 during the American invasion of Afghanistan. That fleet still flies the same ensign they did at the Battle of the Philippine Sea. (laughs) 